You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This episode is brought to you by Timeform, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Racing App, in partnership with Fitstairs. Good morning, welcome to the show. Thursday, February the 1st. Nice bright morning here in TW11. Start of a new month and it's very welcome. Plenty on the Milton Harris case in a few moments' time. I'll alert you to the fact that later in the programme, I'm the intrepid reporter who is brave enough to ring a football agent on transfer deadline day. Luckily, I'm no Jim White, but we do get the inside track on Ballyburn ahead of the Dublin Racing Festival. At that same festival, Gaelic Warrior, yesterday's pod headliner, is set to run as a short price favourite on Sunday at the DRF rather than that more mouth-watering clash that was teed up against Marais Nacional yesterday. His place, it seems, as number one in the Willie Mullins pecking order against Marais Nacional in the big novice chase is taken by Fasal Vega, who suffered defeat at the hands of that horse in the Supreme Novices Hurdle last year. Also on this show, I'll be talking to Andrea Atzani about his bright start in Hong Kong and to Tattersall's Ireland CEO, Simon Kerrins, who offers some most interesting insight about the upcoming sale of the Andy and Gemma Brown Caldwell construction horses that we featured on this podcast last week. That is well worth tuning in for. I'm joined today by newsboy from the Daily Mirror, David Yates, to first digest the news that emerged yesterday that Milton Harris, the Wiltshire-based trainer, uh, would have his license withdrawn indefinitely by the British Horse Racing Authority after the licensing committee found him not a fit and proper person to hold a trainer's license. Um, this doesn't have anything to do with the way he trains his horses, uh, more in his dealings with those around him and his staff. Uh, David Yates, uh, just take us through a little history of Milton Harris, and then we'll talk a bit about the case. Absolutely. A potted history. 2001, Milton Harris trained his first winner, uh, followed by grade two victories in 2003. 2011, uh, he ceased training. He declared himself bankrupt, had his license suspended. He returned in 2018. And it's been pretty much an upward curve since then uh, until uh, the last couple of months. In November of last year, the BHA announced that uh, Harris's license had been suspended, I quote, as a result of a breach of the conditions on his license and related matters. Uh, the BHA objected on three grounds, basically uh, one of them being the, the the nature of his position within the, uh, the company that he trained for. The second was misconduct in his dealings with others, including... Simon Earl, a, a neighbouring trainer, and finally concerns in respect of safeguarding arising out of his conduct with young persons employed at his racing stable. Um, there was a hearing over four days between the 15th and the 18th of January, and we had uh, the, the, the license, licensing committee uh, looked through 1,400 pages of evidence, and yesterday they released a 17,000-word statement giving the results that Milton Harris is no longer uh, considered to be a fit and proper person to hold a licence and uh, the reasons that they gave. We should just mention that Tony Charlton was given uh, the licence last month on a temporary basis and he's trained six winners in the interim. 
news subsequent to this is that Milton Harris is considering an appeal. He has told this programme this morning that he is thinking of an appeal and he's going to issue a full statement. He believes in his words this to be, I quote, very one-sided. That is important and we'll come back to the question of the appeal later because it has some implications as regards the continuation of operations at that stable. And I've been speaking to the BHA this morning as well. Right, let's take each of these separate parts of the reasons for why the licence has been withdrawn in turn. And we'll start with financial irregularities, David. There were conditions attached in the, the, the first his first period with a licence, which, which uh, ended in 2011, as we said. There were failed applications or refused applications in 2013, 2014 and 2015. A licence was issued in 2018, in November of that year. Now, at one of the conditions was that... Essentially, Milton Harris would be an employee of Avon Racing Limited. He wouldn't be a director or have a financial link to this company. He was essentially employed merely as a trainer, uh, and he was also not to uh, trade in horses as, as a bloodstock uh, trader on behalf of Avon Racing Limited. Now, um, it became apparent to the BHA that by October 2021, Milton Harris was a director, and indeed he was the sole director of Avon Racing Limited. Uh, the, the, the two directors who preceded him uh, had been replaced, and therefore he was in breach of the conditions under which he trained. Um, the uh, licensing committee also found that he had been... Uh, he had been dealing in bloodstock on behalf of ARL again, which which was uh, against the the conditions of his license. Okay, Th then there's the some quite shocking detail as regards uh, Milton Harris's relationship with his neighbour and co-tenant at Sutton Veeney, Simon Earl, who was uh, a jockey back in the day and has been a trainer for a couple of decades. Yeah, there are there are a number of incidents between the pair and the the licensing committee found that Simon Earl had been put in a state of heightened emotion and anxiety uh, by Milton Harris that he organized his day to avoid Milton Harris and lived in fear of him um as you say that the two trainers shared gallops um this seemed to be something of a flashpoint Simon Earl felt that these gallops had uh had gone into a poor condition and therefore refused to pay uh, his part of the upkeep uh, for them. There was a flashpoint after uh, Milton Harris had organised a meet uh, an event in July 2020. Um, he alleged that, or he contacted the BHA to ask whether this was allowed under COVID rules, and there was a confrontation between the pair. Uh, again, this involved uh, Milton Harris requesting payment for uh, the upkeep of the gallops, but it also um, was connected to um, what he saw as as uh, Simon Earl contacting the BHA uh, about this event. I'm, I'm going to read you some, some, uh, some of the covert recording um, that Simon Earl had taken. Milton Harris said, uh, so I don't mind if you tell me to fuck off. 
I'd be if you man up to me, I'd be more comfortable instead of just fucking wishy-washy. If I'm finished with you, I'll fucking hit you. I'm finished with you. Uh, there were several more instances, abusive emails. There were two incidents on the Ju on the 20th of June 2022. Um, one of those was on the gallops. Um, Milton Harris, again, was recorded saying to... Uh, Simon Earl, uh, you're a nobody, you're kept, you're a kept man, you cocksucker, kept, you're kept, mummy's little boy, you're fucking useless, you're useless, pathetic. Um, then later that day, Milton Harris approached Simon Earl on, on Simon Earl's training premises and again was recorded saying he pisses about playing at this job. He's pathetic. You're just fucking pathetic. You want to have a bit of me. Step in the field with me and we'll sort it out like men. There's nothing would give me greater pleasure to stick a few into him and, of course, straight to the police. He ain't a man who would stand up. Just pretty pathetic. He's actually useless you're useless you are fucking useless you do you have no idea how pathetic people think you are all my girls think you're pathetic everybody does yeah 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 look at him look he stood here looking at everything like a little schoolboy. he's got mental issues the, the, the licensing committee found that uh, they said uh, what is clear to the panel is that the bullying and harassment campaign which Milton Harris was orchestrating left Simon Earl with few good options in seeking to manage the behaviour of Milton Harris. Um, there was also a point at which uh, Milton Harris said that he had suggested that to Simon Earl that they settle their scores by having a boxing match under Queensbury rules. And he explained to the licensing committee that he had dealt with other professional uh, disputes in exactly that way, which, again, we'll, we'll discuss at the end of this. Um, and one final bit, the, um, the evidence that although he had been told after his licence had, uh, after the, the um, BHA had uh, suspended his license Milton Harris was told not to approach any witnesses in the case he drove his car up to Simon Earl uh, at Simon Earl's yard in November 23 which was followed by a wanker gesture okay let's talk about safeguarding issues as highlighted by this case yeah this again this involves uh, two girls who worked for Milton Harris uh, they referred to by their initials the first is referred to as SJO she worked at Milton Harris's between the ages of 14 and 16 it was the first place that she had uh, worked in uh, she was away from home and she was living uh, in a hostel in the yard um Milton Harris had a a, a WhatsApp group for stable employees but he had a, a separate channel of communication with sjo um she was given the name lovely young girl uh, on his phone he had a depiction of a, a a nude adult female as his avatar um it's clear that there was a significant volume of messages from Milton Harris to SJO. Sometimes when she was at school, um, Milton Harris said that these messages were these messages were entirely innocent. The licensing committee found that they had sexual connotations. Um, that he drove the conversation towards adult topics. Um, they found that his relationship with 
um, SJO, although uh, he regarded it as as parental type support uh, for uh, a, a young person living away from home. That that it certainly strayed into inappropriate conduct. Um, he offered to do uh, certain favours for her. He offered to pay £250 for a course. When she refused this, he called her a stroppy cow. Um, he offered her supper at his house to shower at his yard. Um, also, there were elements of um, evidence re regarding to uh, conversations that he had with SJO. That he, there was a meeting with Hayley Turner um, after this. Um, he told SJO that it was a shame that he, Milton Harris, was 10 years too old. Um, he said to SJO, all men are good lads. It's just the women that turn us into bad ones. Um, he talked about contraception to SJO. He stood in her doorstep, in her doorway talking to her. He also lifted her top at one point, which um, he claimed was merely to demonstrate that she was putting on weight and she had to lose that if she was going uh, to pursue a career as a jockey. The licensing committee found that there wasn't a an element of sexual gratification in this. They said, we should like to make it plain that we do not think Milton Harris's conduct with SJO was done for reasons of sexual gratification. However, it was nevertheless inappropriate because aside from her age, SJO, as Milton Harris well knew, had additional vulnerabilities such as her home situation. And Milton Harris, whether consciously or otherwise, was utilising this to create a situation where SJO was more dependent upon and beholden to Milton Harris. And there was another case with a, a, a girl referred to as LHR. She was 12 or 13 uh, when she worked at Milton Harris's to get some money together uh, to train her pony for racing. The central piece of evidence in, in this instance uh, relates to um, LHR stated that she was in a car and driven alone with Milton Harris up to the gallops, and when she came to get out, she could not. She assumed, because the child lock was activated, preventing the door being opened from the inside. She says Milton Harris laughed and made a comment about liking to keep all girls locked in. Now, this evidence was disputed by Milton Harris, uh, but the licensing committee accepted LHR's account. They concluded, and I'll, I'll quote once more, uh, the comment made by Milton Harris was inappropriate and it made LHR feel uncomfortable. We find that... We find that was an entirely reasonable response. We do not find that Milton Harris chose to lock the doors or that there was any sinister motive on his part, but we think it is more likely than not that LHR found the door would not open from the inside and that he made an inappropriate comment which caused her discomfort. And finally, with re with regard to LHR, uh, again, having been told that he could not approach the witnesses in the case, um, it, it was accepted by the licensing committee that on the 17th of November last year, uh, she was walking to the bus stop in Warminster at about 7.30 in the morning when Milton Harris in a large black Audi came past her, slowed down and sounded his horn. The, the conclusions of the licensing committee in this case, whilst um, accepting that there was no element of sexual gratification, they found that his behaviour was inappropriate and 
in the case of um, SJO amounted to bullying and humiliation. Right. Well done. How many pages was that? Well, it was... Uh, the report was 17,000 uh, words. I probably got it down to about 16,500. There were just a couple of things that we should tidy up. There were character witnesses in support of uh, Milton Harris. But I'll just read you um, what Tim Naylor concluded. Uh, he is the, the British Horse Racing Authority Director of Integrity and uh, Regulatory Operations. He said, racing is a sport that works hard to provide a safe and welcoming space for all. And the ruling of the licensing committee in this case sends a clear message that those in positions of authority in our industry must act in a way that upholds these values. Some of the details in the licensing committee's decision make for extremely uncomfortable reading. Mr. Harris's behaviour over a prolonged period of time fell a long way short of what we expect a of a licensing of a licensed person excuse me and as the committee found would cause damage to racing's reputation if allowed to continue without repercussion we are therefore pleased with the panel's finding that mr harris is not a fit and, per and proper person to hold a license the licensing committee essentially or that they uh, were quoted as saying that they found uh, Milton Harris was ungovernable, at least in the regulatory context, not capable of being regulated. In the past, either by this committee or by the BHA in 2018, he has agreed to take a licence on conditions which he has then, by his own admission, completely ignored and taken no steps to comply with. He has consumed a disproportionate amount of regulatory resource in repeated processes for licence applications, as well as increased inspections and protracted correspondence and investigations. The BHA, in our judgment, is entitled to say enough is enough. Uh, just a point of, of licensing, and this is an important one as well, as you pointed out, Anthony Charlton is the temporary license holder at Sutton Veeney. And I contacted the BHA on the basis that Milton Harris is still there. He's not a disqualified person. He's simply had his trainer's license withdrawn. And therefore, what is to stop business carrying on much as it has done already? And the reply was that on Anthony Charlton, the temporary license is linked to the case. So once the case is completely concluded, and that, of course, is contingent on whether an appeal is lodged or the time to appeal has elapsed, then that temporary licence will be reviewed. So the BHA are aware of that. Um, th this is not a disciplinary sanction on Milton Harris as well. That's the other thing that needs to be pointed out, because it was a licensing hearing, not a disciplinary panel hearing. If you can, just briefly sum up your own thoughts on what you've read. The findings of the panel essentially paint Milton Harris as a sociopath, someone who doesn't believe that the rules apply to him. In, in each of the, the grounds of objection, uh, he seems to be pursuing his life through a, a, a parallel universe. Uh, he evidently sees himself as a, as a maverick uh, who doesn't play by the same rules as everybody else. He also, uh, during um, the, the the proceedings, uh, alleged that the, the BHA had an agenda or a vendetta against him. Um, there, there, there are pretty 
clear instances of gaslighting in this, aren't there? That um, the, the the reference that um, you know all, all all men are basically good guys. It's 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 the women that turn them otherwise, um, absolving men of of uh, of any blame or responsibility in in their dealings uh, with women. Um, it, you know, we've talked before, Nick, about racing being um, a, a a safe and a welcoming place for school leavers to work. Um, is is the, the the situation that was accepted by the licensing committee? Does that paint that picture? It, it doesn't to me particularly. We know that we know that horse racing is an industry and a sport that's out on its own in in, in some ways, but should the standards that it, that exist in horse racing with regard to distance and respect uh, towards particularly vulnerable employees should those standards be any different in a in a, a racing yard in Wiltshire to a, an office in central mm. London I don't see why they should the idea that uh, Milton Harris thinks that it's the right thing to do to go round to any trainers and offer them uh, offer them out to a, a, a boxing match a, a boxing match under Queensbury rules. I mean, the, the next step from that is is challenging somebody to a, a duel at dawn, isn't it? Um, I, I've spoken that I have it in in the past that uh, I have a belief that the BHA worries too much about how things look rather than how they. Uh, I think how, how things actually are but in this case things have to be and they also have to appear uh, uh, proper and uh, appropriate with regard to uh, people coming into the industry and in this case as accepted by the licensing committee Milton Harris fell uh, uh, considerably short of the standards that he, he would have been expected to reach. Uh, you'll be familiar with the clip of Milton Harris appearing on my Sunday program on Racing TV, where he actually talks about the fact that he occasionally goes into the the hostel where um, his girls live, and in his words, sits and stands in the doorway or sits on the end end of the bed with a gin and tonic and gives them life advice. Um, and he says, actually, in the interview, he says, "Oh, some of the older staff tell me off for doing it," acknowledging really that what he perceives to be or perceived to be um something that was okay was not perceived to be okay never mind by the outside world or the outside or, or society outside racing but actually not perceived to be okay by people within his own yard he's keen to paint himself i think as something of a of a a maverick who plays by his own rules you know sort of almost like a a jack regan style figure from the sweeney uh in horse racing in 2024 now in his own mind that might be a, a romantic persona but let, let's look at this from a, a different vantage point say for example you are uh the the parent or the guardian or the relative of a 16-year-old girl who is uh, working away from home for the first time in a horse racing stable. Let's let's take the identity of Milton Harris out of this completely. If the trainer is sitting on the end of your 16-year-old daughter's bed 
with nursing an alcoholic drink in his hand and giving them life advice. He might think that that's, and, and in his own mind, that might be a, a perfectly proper and reasonable and appropriate thing to do. But from the outside, does it look that, does it look that way? Does it not look suspicious? Does it not look inappropriate? Um, I don't wish to be, I sound pompous in saying this, but certainly the, from, from my perspective, that's not how it appears. It, it, it appears inappropriate. It appears improper. And having accepted the facts as they did, the licensing committee surely have come to the right conclusion. All right. Well, if you were with us at the back end of last week, Friday, we reported on the um, immediate sale of the horses in the ownership of Andy and Gemma Brown, who were racing as Caldwell Construction, the red and white colours, horses in training with Gordon, Gordon Elliott and some very good ones at that. It all came as a, a bit of a shock and they all have to go under the hammer, we were told by Joey Logan, their racing manager last week. They couldn't run at the Dublin Racing Festival. They couldn't be bought privately. And that means they go to a special sale at Tattersalls Island Monday the 6th, so next Monday, and that, of course, is a bank holiday in Ireland, and it's right off the back of the Dublin Racing Festival. And Tats Island had a sale yesterday. So, Chief Executive Simon Kerrins, you've had your work cut out. How difficult has it been to, to get this cobbled together at the last minute? Well, not too bad, to be honest with you, Nick. Look, it was busy. Um, we only heard about this last Thursday. Um, so... You know, though initially it was talked that it was going to go to England, um, but then, you know, with people, you know, Gordon not wanting to travel horses to England, understandably, you know, the risk for horses traveling over and then coming back and prior to Cheltenham, prior to Dublin Racing Festival, all of that. Um, he, well, prior to Cheltenham at that time for the next Cheltenham sale, we said it, you know, they said, could you do it in Ireland? We said absolutely. So, testament to the team here. Got the catalogue together. It's online. Um, looks really good. And um, you know, it's been busy, um, but we'd like to be busy. Uh, so, will these horses? These horses will be physically sold. People will actually be able to see them in the flesh. Will they? It won't just be done. It's not all online. No, no, not not at all. Um, people can obviously bid online. Um, basically, there's going to be 29 horses there's 29 horses here they'll be on site at 8 30 on monday morning which is actually the fifth monday the 5th of february and um they will be sold at 3 p.m in addition to that um gordon has allowed um visitors to his yard um by invitation via joey logan the racing manager from um I think 7.30 to 4 every day since Tuesday, since yesterday. So um, right up until Sunday, he's allowing um, he's allowing people to go and inspect the horses, and um, which I think is, um, you know, affords people the opportunity to see horses, vet horses potentially as well. When you get asked to do something like this, obviously you can see the upside of it. They could, they're worth a lot of money, these horses. But are there certain conditions you impose? Is, is it you that, as the sales house, that have said, yeah, we'll do this, but you're not allowed to run any of these horses or or sell them privately in the interim? No, I think I think it was a decision that was made, I think, in the best interest of the horses. And, in, you know, I think they felt, look, horses being sold on Monday, they felt it was a good time Monday directly after Dublin Racing Festival to be a number of UK trainers, owners, agents over um, for Dublin Racing Festival. And it just seemed seamless that it'd be the following day 
they can see horses, you know, at, at Gordon's, you know, by invitation. Um, and then the sale would follow on, on, on Monday. We, um, no, we just, look, we just said we'd, 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 we'd sell these horses um, as they are. Um, that was a decision they made. I think for soundness purposes, they didn't want to offer horses on Monday for anyone's sake that were potentially sore, lame, um, and maybe not sound on Monday. And then I think it gives people the opportunity as well to buy horses on Monday and prepare them for, you know, for any potentially fan, Cheltenham and any other meetings as well. Um, clearly, Caldwell Potter is going to be the, the star attraction, I would have thought, uh, given that he, he bolted up on a grade one novice hurdle last time. Can you even in your own mind imagine what his value is? It's so difficult. I mean, um, you, you know, look, how long is a piece of string? It depends what two people are prepared to give. I mean, loads of cliches you could throw out about horses and their values. Um, I think Caldwell Potter, he's a real high-profile horse, obviously. Incredible page, really impressive winner, got really good engagements, could be anything. Like anything, I think horses, when you're buying the dream, they're always worth so much. We've seen point-to-pointers make over 400,000 at public auctions. So, this is a young grade one winner with grade one entries, at, you know, and if, you know, he stars on the rise, so he could make anything. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, mm. What do you think? I, I, do you know what? I honestly haven't got a clue. I haven't got a clue. And also the, the other key is to what extent do horses lose a bit of value when they know they have to be sold? These horses aren't going, these horses aren't going back to their original owners. And to that point, Simon, I mean, is there a reserve on any horse? I, I'm guessing not. No, there's there's no reserves on any of the horses. So they're there for people to buy. Um, you know, I mean, look, Colin Potter is a high-profile horse, but then you've got either likes of Staffordshire not who, you know, he won his last race at Down Royal by 21 lengths. Um, he's two from three, was third behind a grade one winner first time out. You Pied Piper. We've had interest from Australia with him. You know, he was second at Cesar, which... Um, you have Mighty Bandit, you have Chemical Energy, a potential Grand National horse, you have Dr. Elvis, who looks, I mean, it's an incredible, incredible um, catalogue of horses. And I mean, look, from our perspective, it's a privilege to do it. And, you know, they've been really, really easy to deal with, both Joey and Andy and Gemma Brown. They've been really easy to deal with and we're, you know, we're very, very thankful and privileged and we'll do our very, very best for them on Monday. Simon Kerrins, though, the Chief Executive of Tattersalls Island, and as Simon correctly pointed out, next Monday is the 5th of February, not the 6th, as I said initially. Now, how do you win friends and influence people? Uh, you, ring up, you ring up a football agent on transfer deadline day, but if that football agent happens to own Bally Byrne, who's one of the leading fancies for the Dublin Racing Festival and at the moment is favourite for a Cheltenham Festival novice hurdle, I kind of figure it's fair enough. So I appreciate it, David Manasse. You've owned some good horses. Um, how are you feeling? More anxious about um, today or, or the weekend? <laughs> To be honest with you, I think the the racing and looking forward to the weekend has actually taken a little bit of pressure off me uh, from transfer deadline day, trying to get these deals done before eleven o'clock tonight. I mean, the good news the good news for you, David, is that I am no Jim White, so that I, I, even even if I knew what I was talking about, I wouldn't be trying to wheedle any information out of you. But you, you, are you enjoying the day so far? It's currently ten o'clock. I, I've got. 
I've got my yellow tie on for Jim White. I won't wear it on Sunday at, uh, at Leopardstown there, so don't worry. All right. Tell me a little bit about how excited you are to be involved in partnership with Ronnie Bartlett, of course, in, in Ballyburn. No, it's very exciting. Um, I pretty much just sat on the back of a bike. I said to Ronnie, go and find me a horse and I'll come with you. You pick it, you send the bill to me and I'll I'll join you. The only thing I asked was for Willie Mullins to train it. So I'm in Ronnie's hands, really. Ronnie's a great partner and I've just let him get on with it, manage it, and I just come along for the ride. Um, obviously, to be involved in... Dublin Racing Festival this weekend is fantastic. I've never been, but I've heard it's a great weekend. And um, I'm just looking forward to it. Look, the, I'm not a, I, I don't understand racing unbelievably, but I don't understand how a horse can go be a favourite going from a maiden to a grade one. But that's racing for you. And you're not a complete newbie. You've had you've had involvement in horses for an awful long time, and and your dad Morris is absolutely in love with the game. Um, some nice horses with David Pipe as well, and you were reminding me MC Muldoon just chinned at, at Royal Ascot a couple of years ago. I, I had MC Muldoon, which was chinned with Willie at Royal Ascot. I think that was a year after COVID. Um, but I've had a, a winner in Ireland with David Pipe uh, called Street Entertainer, which Tony McCoy rode, or Sir Tony McCoy. And um, I've also had a Cheltenham Trials Day winner with Whispered Secret with. Mm. Um, with, with I think that was with Martin Pipe rather than no with David Pipe. And can you can you remember your first trip to the races? Were you taken as a as a young kid? Was it part of family life as a as a boy? I Newbury probably, and I was seven years old. I think it was. So, so I'm fifty. So forty eight years later, I've got a runner in a Grade One. So let's just look. Let's just go over, enjoy the day. Thank God this transfer window will be out of the way, and I can enjoy the weekend and. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Okay, well, 2024 sees the launch of a new campaign for the Yorkshire Beacon, which is the umbrella for Go Racing in Yorkshire's charitable activities run collectively with and on behalf of the nine Yorkshire racecourses. Uh, now, to tell me a little bit more, I can welcome to the show once again Charlotte Russell, who's the general manager for Go Racing in Yorkshire. Charlotte, tell me a little bit about where you are directing your energies this year as part of Yorkshire Beacon. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um, the Yorkshire Beacon uh, was set up a couple of years ago just to sort of pull together all the charitable ac- activities and um, charities that we support across the race courses. And then we wanted, as we, as it's progressed, we wanted to have a main focus to, to partner with someone. Um, and so this year we are working with local NHS trusts specifically on the bowel cancer screening program. Um, someone from a local trust approached Weatherby Racecourse about going there to, to, to sort of talk about the services. Um, and Michelle there said, look, you know, this sounds like something that we can do, run across all the Yorkshire racecourses, speak to Charlotte. So we've got something in place now. It involves, I think, four different trusts, um, but it's all with the same outcome. And if you look at their target market, which is sort of 60 to 74 year olds, although the screening programme has now been extended to include 50 to 59 year olds, it fits very much with our midweek race goer, uh, you know, stereotypically a lot of men who probably don't 
talk about these things or receive their testing kits through the post and leave them to one side. Um, so I think we, it, it's a great fit there. And um, we've got the teams coming to the race courses to, to chat to the race goers and um, just, just promote the benefits of, of, of the kit and um, the screening programme. That's a wonderful idea. And I know you are doing your bits personally to support the Macmillan Charity Day at York this year by riding in the, in the charity race. How are you enjoying the training? Oh, Nick, it is, it's wonderful. Everything, um, I didn't really know what to expect, but I, I'm loving every second of it. Uh, we are being treated so professionally by the race course, by the Macmillan team, by Jack Berry House, um, by everyone um, who, who we are uh, dealing with. I've got jockey training again tonight with Ross Garrity, which is just brilliant um i'm enjoying the fitness side of things again danny at jackberry house takes us puts us through our paces a couple of times a week um uh, i'm riding out uh, two or three times a week I, th- I think i've got a horse to ride hopefully so i've been down at tony calls to ride that um and um e- everything e- e- the other thing i hadn't appreciated was everyone you speak to who knows you're doing the race is just full of warmth and good wishes for you. I had my first fundraising night um, on Friday and showed the film Champions in my local village hall. Um, 50 people came. They all left in tears. Um, Tomo and Bob Champion did a little introduction for me which was fantastic and just the warmth that comes from people is is really spurring me on. It's, It's fantastic. Charlotte, lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much and best of luck. Thank you, Nick. Well, when top jockey Andrea Atzani bade farewell for the time being to to Great Britain uh, with a a Group 1 winner freshly under his belt, you'd be forgiven for wondering whether he had mixed feelings. I don't suppose he's got mixed feelings now because his career in Hong Kong has got off to a pretty blistering start by Hong Kong standards. And the end of January yesterday was marked by yet another winner, uh, this time on Simply Maverick and 115,000 sterling handicap at Happy Valley, a notoriously difficult race course to ride, and that was the final one of seven rides he enjoyed on the day, four of whom uh, made it into the into the money. So, Andrea, I'm guessing I'd be right in thinking you're pretty happy with the way things are going. Well, you always get, you know, obviously mixed feelings. Um, but yes, no, and Nick, I can't complain the way things are going here in Hong Kong. Um, he's actually going quite well, um, surprisingly, and... Um, I'm really enjoying it, and uh, just let's hope it continues. It's it's like anything. Think you know, since the start of the uh, new year, I've had um, I think I had ten winners this month, which which is probably not a bad number. Uh, out of uh, I think out of ten ten meetings, I rode um, ten winners. So yeah, you know, it's it's been a good good start of the year anyway. I mean, by Hong Kong standards, everybody knows you're being modest. That's that's pretty outstanding, really. You only have to look down the list of, of horses that you've ridden and what prices they start at as well. You know, you're not talking about a whole load of odds-on shots. The racing's so competitive. It's 10 to 1, 20 to 1, 16 to 1, 20 to 1, 60 to 1. You know, th- these races are unbelievably hard to win. How hard are they to ride relative to what you were used to at home? Well, you know, the thing is with here... Like, uh, to be honest with you, Nick, I never looked at the price of the horse before or now anyway, so it makes no difference whether it's a, an even money shot or a 50 to 1 shot. So you always sort of ride the, the same horse accordingly. But here, the, the handicap system is very tight, and uh, there's not much between any horses in the race. Um, so it's, and obviously, the prize money is it's, it's big and it's so competitive. And um, 
but yeah, no, listen, I didn't, I didn't come here and I was riding even money, even money shots all the time. You know, I had big outsiders and lucky enough, I've done well with them. And, uh, you know, I don't ride favourites all the time, but, um, you know, so far it's, it's been going well. And um, it, like I said, it, it, it's, listen, it's, it's tough everywhere. It's tough in England, it's tough in Europe. It, it's, it's tough everywhere, anywhere you go. And uh, But here, they, like I said, the handicap system is very tight and... Uh, you know, sometimes it's just because you're riding one of the outsiders, it doesn't mean you've got an outside chance. It, what's also impressed me is you seem to have developed yourself a, a really impressive network of trainers. You, you can't really get a head start in terms of getting agents in, in Hong Kong. So how have you managed to, to get your network going? Yeah, so for the first, for the first three months, I had, uh, had somebody helping me, uh, which the club, the jockey club provided. But for the last couple of months, I've been doing it myself, which is, is challenging. Um, booking me on rides and you know looking at entries and uh, looking at the handicap system and what horses I could ride and the weights and you know so you know the, the good thing about me I'm, I'm quite light so I can take my weight I can use my weight as an advantage um, so I need to look for horses that uh, maybe they, they, they're going up in class and they're going to carry a low weight where maybe, you know, somebody like, some of the jockeys like Zach Burton or, or you Bowman, you know, the leading riders here can't ride. So I can use my weight as an advantage. But it, it is challenging. I must say the riding part is very difficult. Obviously, it's very tough. But also the, you know, the booking your own rides and, you know, organize, basically organize everything myself. It's it's challenging too. So although we race in two days a week, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's a seven days a week job. Mm. Um, and how are you settling into to life in general in in Hong Kong? How are you finding it? Because it's it's very different in terms of of space and you know, living in a more urban environment. How are you adapting to that? Well, no, I'm enjoying it. Um, like I said, the thing is with here, you can actually plan your week because you know you're going to be racing two days a week, Wednesdays and Sundays. Sometimes we race on a Saturday, but uh, at least you can sort of have a, you can plan your week ahead and uh, just you know decide what to do if you're going to spend some time you know have some time for yourself or for, for you know the girlfriend or training or whatever it's you know it can actually plan your week ahead in advance which which is a big thing here in Hong Kong and the lifestyle in general is great and, and moving forward obviously you want to get yourself on on the very best horses even though you're you're riding in a lot of the big races who have you ridden so far that's that's excited you and you think might be a might be a horse that you can really take forward into into some of those really big meetings well, I came here and, and I landed on a horse called Lucky With You. Uh, he actually I rode him in a handicap on his first start and he's one of the outsiders of the field and he an, ended up winning the Class 2 handicap and then I got back on an international day in the Group 1 sprint and he finished second in the Group 1 behind Lucky Swainers at a big prize, obviously. And then uh, he literally ran last Sunday in another Group 1 uh, six furlongs here and uh, he finished second again in, in a group one race so he's, he's a good horse there on my side i just landed on him by chance and there's another horse called Tyrus Dragon, which is a horse that gave me my first group winner in Hong Kong uh, in on the 1st of January so the two good two horses two good horses to look forward to the only problem there's a you know they clashed last time and there's a good chance they might clash again next time so I can only ride one of them unfortunately Okay, well, fingers crossed that they, they carry you to more big race successes. What are your plans when the Hong Kong season is, is finished? Do you take a complete break for a couple of months or do you come back here for a bit? What's the, what's the deal? 
I will, Nick. So the, the season finishes here on the 14th of January and, and we get uh, uh, about six weeks off. You mean the 14th of, 14th, 14th of July, yeah? Uh, 14th of July, sorry. Yeah, 14th of July. That's, that's the last day of the season and we get six weeks off uh, during that time. And uh, when my contract obviously ends at the, on the, at the end of the season, but I'm hoping to renew again for another year. So if that's the case, I will spend a lot of time in, in my, with my family in, in Italy and my parents and friends. And uh, yeah, just, you know, it, it's something different for me because I never had to, I never planned anything I had before. But at this time, I can actually plan a holiday and spend the time with my family and my friends and you know, being able to, to, to organise everything in advance. And uh, and I'm hoping to come back to Hong Kong for the next season. Fingers crossed, Andreas. Great to see you doing so well. Thanks so much for talking to me. I'll let you, uh, let you get back. Thank you very much, Nick. Thanks for calling me. Well, thank you to all my guests today. Uh, particularly thanks to David Yates for uh, going through that very, very lengthy Milton Harris hearing. And David, let's uh, just finish this by talking about this case involving Baroness Moan and her husband, uh, Doug Barrowman, uh, and their horse, Monbeg Genius, who's currently amongst the favourites for the Grand National. We did speak about this earlier in the week. You've spoken to their legal team. I have indeed, yeah. Th this um, Towards the end of last week, it emerged, of course, that um, £75 million worth of assets belonging to Doug Barrowman, uh, the husband of Baroness Moan and uh, Michelle Moan, herself had uh, been frozen. Uh, this is uh, pending the outcome of a, a national crime agency investigation into the sale of allegedly false personal protective equipment during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Um, among the properties seized uh, is a six-bedroom Belgravia townhouse, an estate on the Isle of Man, and also frozen are 1515 bank accounts. Um, now, this raised the question of whether Monbeg Genius would be able to run in the, the Randolph's Grand National. He's among the 14-to-1 uh, co-favourites in one list. Now, um, the BHA said earlier, um, the BHA is aware of reports regarding a court order in relation to the assets of Michelle Moan and Doug Barrowman. We are in contact with the relevant individuals to understand what implications, if any, there are for their involvement in racing. Now, at, at that point, it seemed that um, a, a, a question mark stood over uh, Monbeg Genius's racing future, at least for the Moans. Now, a, a, a senior member of the couple's legal team at Grosvenor Law uh, told me that Monbeg Genius is, I quote, not the subject of a restraining order. And um, he added, representatives for Mr. Barrowman have responded to the BHA and helped them with their questions promptly. Um, so it, it seems, according to the legal representative, at least, that um, Monbeg Genius isn't part uh, of that restraining order and therefore should be able to run. Of course, uh, he missed the classic chase at Warwick in January and the Welsh Grand National at Chepstow in December. Uh, John O'Neill, I think, in, in tabloid uh, terms, um, faces something of a, a race against time to to get the eight-year-old uh, fit and, and, and ready for entry. But 
as things stand, it doesn't seem like there's going to be a legal objection, but that, I think, will be clarified by the British Horse Racing Authority either today or tomorrow. Thank you very much for that. Do you have a tip for me? I do indeed. We're going to go to Chelmsford City for the eight o'clock race. Number six, Cavaluccio, uh, a five-year-old trained by Alice Haynes, a real regular at the Essex showground, um, has been successful three times over course and distance and is two pounds well in after a second there last time out. I hope that Cavaluccio can make it win number four over 10 furlongs at Chelmsford City. Eight o'clock Chelmsford City, number six, Cavaluccio. Lovely, David. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for listening. That was Thursday, February the 1st, and we will be back to do it again tomorrow. Bye for now. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily in association with Timeform, with the Racehorse Owners Association and with the Racing App in partnership with Fitzdares.